Our sermon text this evening is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's humbly hear the word of God from Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your hearts that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So for our reading, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would believe because you tell us that your word is sufficient to teach and to train us, to equip us and make us competent for every good work. Father, we would believe because you tell us that this word is better than bread, more urgent than our earthly lives. 
Father, give us ears to hear it tonight. Cause it to be preached faithfully and usefully. And be honored as your people turn towards you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is part of the total devotion section of the book of Deuteronomy, as we've described it. In chapters 6 through 11 of Deuteronomy, we've been hearing about total devotion, starting with the great Shema and the great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. It is, in a sense, we've said, chapters 6 through 11, an applying of the first commandment to have no God but God. And yet, it's mainly been, these chapters, about our attitude and our priorities rather than about specific rules when it comes to applying the first commandment. When we are concerned about God and his honor and his will, when we bring total devotion to bear on our lives, what happens? Well, in the case of the Israelites who first heard these messages before crossing the Jordan River into Canaan, Moses taught them, for instance, in chapter 7, what happens when total devotion enters that land and meets wicked nations. Those who would seduce you into idolatry. What happens is war, as we saw last week. But now in chapter 8, what happens when total devotion enters into Canaan and meets the prosperity of the land itself? What happens to our total devotion when we start to enjoy the blessings of our inheritance is what's being wondered here in Deuteronomy 8. The great concern of this chapter is that wealth will make God's people forget about him. That is to say, God's people will fall in love with their gifts instead of the giver, leading to spiritual laziness, pride, uh, and even, ironically, to idolatry. You may have noticed that concern with wealth as we read through chapter 8, but also you may have noticed this concern about remembering versus forgetting. That runs through the entire thing. Uh, verse 2, you shall remember the whole way the Lord led you. Verse 11, take care lest you forget. Verse 14, your lifted up heart would forget the Lord. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God who gives you power to get wealth. And verse 19, there's actually the same terminology twice, you don't see it because of a quirk of Hebrew grammar where they have a way of doubling the verb to make it more emphatic. And if you, forgetting, forget the Lord, uh, or if you absolutely forget, or if you ever forget, we might say, and go after other gods, there will be consequences. So remembering and forgetting in the context of the wealth that is going to be before us, but also the total devotion that's supposed to orient us. That's what chapter 8 is about. We can divide Deuteronomy 8 into four roughly equal parts, four quarters. Let's, let's title them like this. First, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty, verses 1 through 5. Second, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who blesses you abundantly, verses 6 through 10. Third, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who does you good eventually, verses 11 through 16. And fourth, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who warns against idolatry, verses 17 through 20. 
So when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty, who blesses you abundantly, who does you good eventually, and who warns against idolatry. In the first place then, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty. Verse 1 of our chapter is similar to previous verses. It's almost a a thematic repetition. Several times Moses has said this. I'm teaching you all this stuff so that you will do the whole commandment, so that you will be blessed in your obedience. It's like a programmatic statement. Moses' running agenda captured in these sorts of formulas I'm telling you this stuff so that you will remember and do and be blessed. But verse 2 really introduces the unique concern of our chapter, chapter 8, that concern about remembering. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So these past 40 years, Moses says, have been a test, a divinely orchestrated test. They might have been other things as well. They might have been a kind of strategic limitation. They might have been a kind of punishment against unbelief when the people refused to enter the land the first time around. They might have been a number of things, but they were also a test in which the Lord was showing whether you would keep his commandments or not, showing your heart. Now, all through the Bible, we find God testing people, and you can expect in certain ways, Christian, that God will test you. That's not because God is ignorant of your heart. Of course, he sees right through us and knows us better than we know ourselves. But God is pleased from time to time to reveal those secrets. And sometimes the things that he pulls out of our hearts, that he exposes through the tests he puts us through, even if they're not news exactly to the Almighty, are news to us. And so these people have been put through a testing process. They were tested, first of all, by the wilderness itself, right? Uh, That is a place of deprivation, a place of pilgrimage. It's not anybody's home. I mean, the Sinai Peninsula then as now really is not a hospitable place. You can't grow stuff there. Um, Clearly, it was a holding pattern that they were in, uh, as well as a precarious situation where the very question of life and death, food and drink, had to be answered anew every single day. So they were tested by this hardship, by this having nothing in the wilderness. And they were also tested, specifically, verse 3 says, by hunger. He humbled you and let you hunger. Now, we usually rush right past that to the part where God's providing them manna, but God made them hungry in the first place. God made them weary. God made them wonder where their next meal was going to come from. God made them kind of wish they were still in Egypt at certain points of Exodus and Numbers, right? God brought them into that situation. Part of their testing was hunger itself. The delay in his blessing was part of the plan. But then it was also part of the test how he met that need, how he supplied their hunger. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor your fathers know. Manna is first unveiled in Exodus chapter 16. Uh, You might remember that it's sort of like bread, but it sort of tastes like honey cakes, and it sort of looks like dew on the ground, and people sometimes try to come up with naturalistic explanations for it, but the whole point is there's not a natural explanation uh, for enough, you know, 
carbs on the ground to feed 600,000 people, 600, people for the whole day. It's a supernatural gift, this manna, and the people don't know what it is. Uh, that's why they say minhu, and that's where it gets its name. What is that? Did Moses reminds them here that it was supernaturally given and unfamiliar to them. You didn't know, nor did your fathers know. Why does he say that? Well, he's saying this was not something that you uh, could have expected, and it's certainly not anything that you could have planned or controlled. The way God fed you and what he fed you with was a lesson in your dependence on him. A new miracle every morning. Man on the ground. Now verse 3 also says the lesson that they should have learned from that was that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, You should have learned, in other words, that since you depend on God completely to keep you alive with bread, and it can actually just be the general term for food, every morning, every day, what he wants is what you should be concerned about. What he says should interest you more than the gift of bread that he gives. Now, verse 4 is interesting because it sort of supplies uh, the other side of this. God has limited the way he's tested his people. Right? He brought them in the wilderness. He let them feel their hunger and frustration for a while. Then he supplied them manna, the kind of thing that was really going to test their faith every single day. But he didn't test them in certain other ways. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell. Uh, The term for wearing out here has more to do with uh, rot and mold and moth, uh, more than tearing or or scraping a hole in something. Um, But it's the idea that things didn't seem to age out, and your foot didn't swell. Uh, Some translate that as your your feet didn't blister. Right? Your, your shoes didn't wear out so that your feet were on the hot sand and you had blisters all day. It's interesting because this provision is clearly meant to be seen as miraculous, and yet it's such a slow-moving miracle spread across hundreds of thousands of people for four decades that you wonder if anybody noticed. Hey, you notice how our clothes aren't rotting to pieces anymore like they did in Egypt? Have you noticed how none of us brought any shoe leather with us, and yet we all seem to be okay still? Moses is pointing this out so that they will notice, hitherto has the Lord brought us, right? Hitherto has he blessed us, like Samuel says. Notice how God has provided for you, and in this context, the point is he has not tested you with everything. He has not overloaded you. It's similar to what we're told as Christians in 1 Corinthians 10. That no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation will provide the way of escape that you may endure. The Lord knows, as he trains and tests his people, how much would be too much for them to take. And so he tests them with hunger. He tests them with manna. He does not test them with clothing. He does not test them with their feet swelling. He tests them just as they need. And the sum of that is verse 5. A man disciplines his son. That's the way the Lord your God disciplines you. He's treating you like children. He's training you, disciplining you like sons. You should see in both the things you lack and in the things you have, God's careful guidance, equilibrium, 
and spiritual growing of you, O Israelite or O Christian believer. Now, what's the upshot of these verses? That when you prosper in the future, when you cross over there, don't forget that back here, these past 40 years in the wilderness, in your desperation, your adversity, your poverty, that God has been with you, guiding you and testing you, disciplining you like a father. Well, upshot number one is, of course, so obey all the things Moses is saying. That's the one he keeps coming back to all throughout the book. Uh, he'll actually say that in all four quarters of our chapter tonight. Again, verse one, the whole commandment I command you today, meaning the whole book of Deuteronomy, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. But to be a little more specific to this section of the text, verses one through five, let's also not miss the lesson that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As you probably realize, this is one of the three verses from Deuteronomy that Jesus quoted in the time of his temptation. When he was being prepared for ministry after his baptism, but before all of his preaching and miracles, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and, of course, being deprived, being hungry, having a desert sort of experience. And at the end of it, we read this, Matthew 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we sometimes wonder, well, what would have been so bad about Jesus providing bread for himself through a miracle in the wilderness. But understand what's at stake in Matthew 4, and actually back in Deuteronomy 8, which he is quoting. And also for us, when we are tempted sometimes. It's not just the question of bread. Did you notice what Satan said there? If you are the son, if you're the son, if God's your father, shouldn't you have bread to eat? Shouldn't you have better than this? Can't a father figure out how to provide for his hungry child? And that's exactly what Deuteronomy 8 is talking about. When it says that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why? Know that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. You see, the issue of the bread in the desert was, uh, would Jesus be content under the direction of his father, specifically here, it was the leadership of the Spirit uh, taking him here. Would he be content with um, uh, being trained and disciplined like a man trains or disciplines his son? Or instead of being like a humble son receiving what the father has appointed, would he say, okay, no, I figured out that the father is not providing for me adequately. I have lost my patience and I will meet my own needs. See, that's the issue. It's not just bread, it's sonship. And so with you and me. Yeah, we're supposed to count God's word as mattering more than bread. But realistically, when do you ever have to choose between the two? 
But here is the live issue. The live issue is we sometimes don't regard God as fatherly, as being careful and wise and generous and providing what we need. And if we delay, it's because he meant the delay. And the delay is somehow good for us and part of his testing of us. We're tempted to doubt God, and that's why we would prioritize bread or whatever other bills or concerns we might have in this world more than we prioritize his word, his command. And he says, go where I say and trust me on the way. The Israelites were supposed to learn that what God says matters more than providing your own bread because God, in fact, is a father who trains and disciplines his son. Please remember that the next time you face some kind of hardship and are tempted to be dissatisfied and impatient and you wonder, if God is my father, if all these promises are true in the Bible, why would I have to suffer like this? Why the delay? Why the pain? Can't he do any better than this? It's the same temptation that Jesus was facing in which he answered with the lesson of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Not by bread, but by the word of God. So when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty. Second, when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who blesses you abundantly in verses 6 through 10. Once again, our section begins with a thematic statement from Moses, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. But then in verse 7, we start hearing about what they're soon to enter into, these Israelites. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, uh, a land where some of these really harsh tests, this really uh, tenuous wilderness experience will be over. You can put down roots and you can enjoy great abundance. And not only are you walking into a land flowing with milk and honey, whose armies will collapse before you and whose cities will become your cities, but you will continue to prosper. You will multiply, he says, more kids, more flocks, more wealth. You're set up to succeed. Brooks of water, fountains and springs, um, no need to get into great detail there, but that explains some of the ways how in the climate of Canaan you need to uh, depend on water in a seasonal way, and, and, it's, and it's, look, God will provide you either water from heaven that flows down the valleys, or he will provide it built up in your cisterns or flowing out of your fountains. One way or another, you'll have plenty to drink. One way or another, verse 8, you can have plenty to eat. A land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, honey. Seven, a list of seven to show us the completeness of the bounty of the land. Uh, six out of these seven, we know that the Egyptians also have records of the stuff Canaan was known for and good for. Uh, historically speaking, wine and olive oil tended to become export crops for Israel later on. Most of the rest of these, though, are just for your own local enjoyment, right? Your... Uh, your wheat and your barley, your vines, your figs, these things are meant to bless you. Interestingly, this is both an echo, you might say, of the rich provision of the land of Eden, which you should expect, because the promised land is a picture of future heavenly glory, which corresponds to past paradise. So there are echoes of that in the richness of the land as it's described. If you'll just go in there and obey, there's so much to enjoy. 
<clears throat> but also it's a rebuttal to those who looked to the fertility gods of the Canaanites. Well, why do we have milk and honey? And why do we have olive trees and fig trees? Well, because we have a god or goddess for each one of those, and we did all the right rituals and sacrifices. And boy, when the rain stopped falling and things got really bad, we you know uh, slaughtered the right sacrifices, maybe even burned up some of our children to some of our gods. But we did all the fertility magic and... God is saying here, as he says so often in the Bible, there is no fertility God apart from me. I am the one who grows your fruit, who fills your barns, who makes sure you have plenty, who withholds from us really no good thing and withholds from us therefore no prosperity except what will actually do us good in the long run or what is needed to answer and correct our sin. You probably know many times Israel would have to go through things that were not so ideal because God was dealing with them not being obedient. Anyway, there's great bounty, there's great fertility, there's echoes of Eden, there's such provision available at their fingertips, verses 7, 8, and 9. And then at the end of verse 9, something terribly interesting, at least to me. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You and I, in a post-industrial age, aren't usually worried about where we get our copper and our iron from. But this is a big deal, and it's a big part of the wealth of the land. It's interesting because, uh, well, a number of reasons. First of all, it's another reminder of the original wealth that God built into creation. Do you remember in Genesis, as we're being told about Eden and where it's situated... Moses almost seems to go off script a little and start telling us about how wonderfully rich the mineralogy of the land is. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, God plants a garden in Eden, uh, puts the man who he formed, every tree is growing that's pleasant to the sight. And then verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and delium and onyx stone are there. Why do we need to know about the geology and mineralogy of Eden? It's speaking about the richness, everything you need. Everything you need to be strong, everything you need to be prosperous. This is important to be able to find this kind of wealth in the land God is giving. Now, actually, in Palestine, relatively speaking, there isn't a lot of iron. Um, you can only find it, I'm told, in the... Uh, sort of Transjordan area, the, the part they conquered from Sihon and Og, uh, near the Jabbok River. Uh, mostly all you had was back then meteoric iron. Uh, you just had the, you know, the rocks that fell out of the sky tend to be iron. And then copper uh, was largely controlled by the Edomites on the south end of the Dead Sea. They were known basically for two things, those Edomites, for digging up copper and for making war. But also there are copper deposits in Israel itself, again, mostly on the Transjordan side of the river. And so this is a subtle reminder of the great wisdom of God's providence in adding the Transjordan to Israel's possession. You remember how that wasn't originally the promised land? Do you remember how there had to be these big battles against Sihon and Og back in the book of Numbers uh, and how they then had to decide, are we allowed to settle here? And eventually two and a half tribes are given permission to live there. And in effect, the promised land grows by, I don't know, 40 or 50 percent. 
And part of what's over there, part of what's added, part of what God knew all along that they would need is the iron and the copper for you to live a decent life in the ancient world. One more fascinating detail here about this iron and copper. This note in verse 9 shows you that the book of Deuteronomy has what I would call a Bronze Age point of view. Now, what do I mean? If you studied history, you realize that historians generally trace the development of civilizations through a Stone Age, a Bronze Age, and an Iron Age, right? Depending on how technologically sophisticated you are, you can gauge it by what do people make most of their weapons, most of their tools out of? You know, what does the world run on? Does it run on stone? Does it run on bronze? Actually, there's a Copper Age in there, but didn't take people very long to figure out copper's not super helpful unless you add tin or something else to turn it into bronze. So you got stone, you got bronze, and then you got iron. Well, the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, the Bronze Age had been around for a couple thousand years in the Middle East by this point, that transition happens starting in the 1100s BC. There's actually the Bronze Age collapse, one of those calamitous centuries when all the kingdoms fall and there's mass starvation and mass migration and, and human civilization really is on the rocks, you might say. And then finally, as people get their act together and you've got new nations, new civilizations, new technologies developing, human civilization uh, rises back up in the 1100s down into the, you know, the, the 1000s as an Iron Age civilization. Now we know how to dig up enough iron to make a meaningful difference. We can heat fires hot enough to actually you know, smelt it, actually get it uh, mixed into good alloy, uh, alloys, and start using it for everyday stuff. So not just rich, fancy people have iron as some artifact of a stone that fell out of heaven, but everybody can cook with and, and, and fight with and farm with iron. Uh, fascinatingly, in the book of 1 Samuel, you can see the transition from Bronze Age to Iron Age in the days of King Saul. Uh, now, the Iron Age, you might say, has been going on for a few decades by this point, according to historians. But in 1 Samuel 13, you find out the way that the Philistines, who had settled the coastland of the Mediterranean, kept a check on all those Israelite tribes up in the hills, is that they didn't let them have any iron. And they didn't let them develop any blacksmithing. And so everybody had to bring their tools and implements down to the Philistines and had to trade and be price gouged by the Philistines. And so when Saul goes to fight a battle in 1 Kings 13, he's severely disadvantaged. He's got a Bronze Age army, effectively, fighting an Iron Age army in the Philistines. Why is all this so interesting? Well, as I say, the book of Deuteronomy reflects here a Bronze Age perspective. You know, plenty of iron on the ground. You can pick up any meteors, any of these pockmarked stones that you want, and you can make your spear tip or whatever. You know, people look at this and say, ah, the Deuteronomy's inaccurate. Don't they know that Palestine hardly has any iron? The only iron that Canaan had basically was the meteor stuff that fell out of the sky. The only people who had it were the, you know, rich, powerful, fancy people who could do something with meteors and collect the stones off the ground. But yeah, it was plenty of iron for the Bronze Age. Moses is describing a very appealing situation 
For back in the 1200s or more likely the 1400s BC, when no scholar seems to want to admit that a man named Moses actually lived, God actually rescued a people and made covenant with them, and then recorded it all in books for us to have passed down to read, like Deuteronomy. You have Bronze Age priorities, technology, geography being reflected here in the book of Deuteronomy when it says, don't worry, there's plenty of copper and plenty of iron like stones laying on the ground for you to pick up. That is a Bronze Age assessment. Just a, probably too much time on that, but I just love those little historical reinforcements that show us the truthfulness of God's word, uh, no matter how smart skeptics may think they are. So God is blessing you abundantly. Plenty of you know, uh, plants growing and, and, and honey flowing and all the Bronze Age metal that you could possibly want to run your civilization. And the outcome is supposed to be in verse 10. Satisfaction that leads you to bless God instead of forget him. You shall lead him be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Again, not only are we be call, being called to obedience generally and repeatedly, like in verse 6, but specifically we're being told here, make sure God's gifts make you thankful. Gifts are only good when we receive them as gifts. Not as entitlements, not as stuff that we provided for ourselves, but as gifts. Eat, be full, and bless the Lord for the good land he gave you as a gift. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes 2. There's nothing better under the sun for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But this I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The right response to the abundant blessings of the promised land are fundamentally gratitude. You bless the Lord because he's blessed you. Now, brothers and sisters, I recognize that you and I are in a different position than the Israelites at this point because the promised land was for them a picture of heavenly glory, a picture of rest that is yet in our future, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. You and I do not have, as part of our terms and conditions of covenant life with God, agricultural prosperity, for instance, all the iron and copper you could ever want if you obey. You and I have our riches still ahead of us, stored up in heaven. You and I are directed to follow the course of the mediator who was first humbled and even crucified and whose cross came before his crown. So you and I can't necessarily go to a verse like this and claim that we are automatically going to get all this stuff at the same time, though, can we not admit that we are pretty richly blessed? I mean, here are people in awe of how much copper and iron is on the ground and how well the trees are growing. And What do you and I have? Things that would have been counted as luxuries by previous generations if they could even be conceived of at all. All of the safety, all of the prosperity, all of the walk into a store and buy whatever you want from any corner of the world in any season of the year we are very richly blessed in the providence of God. And so we need to be hearing the warning and instruction of Deuteronomy 8 as well. 
Remember, maybe if things were harder for us in our poverty, that we've been tested and brought to this point, but now also we need to recognize that our abundance comes from the Lord. And it is meant to be enjoyed, not separate from him. Oh, that's really interesting. I have a spiritual side to me on Sundays, but then during the week I'm working for my paycheck and I provide everything with my own two hands. No, we are supposed to see it all as God's provision. And when we break our bread, we do so before his face, in his presence, blessing his name. Gifts are only good as gifts received from God the giver even if our prosperity is on somewhat different terms, we still are a prospered people who should not, therefore, forget the Lord. When you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty. When you prosper, don't forget the Lord who blesses you abundantly. When you prosper now, don't forget the Lord who does you good eventually. Verses 11 through 16. Once again, a statement about obeying God's commands in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Uh, That is the recurring theme of our passage and indeed of the whole book. Moses also tells us the situation in which we might be tempted to forget. Forget, he says, is not necessarily let God's existence slip from your mind, but rather you forget by not keeping his commandments. Forget, you might say, by not taking the Lord seriously. And what would lead us to not take God seriously? Verse 12. When you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. It's when your prosperity becomes your life, becomes your pursuit, becomes in your heart so that your heart is lifted up. This is what I'm concerned about when my alarm clock goes off in the morning that's forgetting the Lord I'm more concerned about the prosperity I'm enjoying and the lifestyle I'm maintaining than I am about God now forgetting the Lord your God verse 14 is then described in a series of clauses that begin with who in the English so, so there are circumstances that could make us forget. We could fall in love with our own prosperity. There is a spiritual manifestation of that, a proud or lifted up heart, verse 14. But then a description of the God we are forgetting. Who, verse 14, brought you out of the land of Egypt? Who, verse 15, led you through the great and terrifying wilderness? With its fiery, meaning venomous serpents, scorpions, thirsty ground. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? And even down in, into verse 18. Remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. See, the danger here is in forgetting The God who has done these things, who redeemed us in the first place, verse 14, brought you out of the land of Egypt, the great Old Testament precursor to the salvation of Jesus Christ, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, that that Old Testament picture of what life is for us between experiencing grace and inheriting glory, who along the way provided you water and provided you with manna, verses 15 and 16 are talking about. And then once again, verse 16 says, there was a test involved in this. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? 
that he might humble you and test you. You say, well, is that just a repetition from like verses 3, 4, and 5? Well, no, there's a little bit different emphasis here. Now God is not testing us by what we lack, by our hardship, by our desperate dependence on being fed daily manna, but rather the emphasis down here is on the manna as a gift and as the water out of the flinty rock is what we need and on the guidance without which we wouldn't have made it through the wilderness and on the redemption that started it all. In other words, we're being told that God tests us not just through hardship, he tests us through all of those gifts that sustain us and eventually make us prosperous. Many of you probably realize that prosperity can be as great, if not a greater, spiritual test than poverty. That it is so tempting to forget how much we have depended on God. We are being humbled and tested even by the good things that we enjoy, this verse is saying. And ultimately, all of that, all of the bringing us out and bringing us through and humbling and testing us, even with our gifts, all of it, verse 16 says at the end, was to do you good in the end. That is to do you good eventually. In the long run, God had your good at heart. He was not trying to get you to fail. He was not trying uh, to revel in your sin. He was rather seeking to do you good in the long run or eventually. To have you be trained, have you be heavenly oriented, have you be mindful of all these blessings. Okay, so what's the application of the fact that God has sustained us? The application of the fact that we must not forget him in our prosperity. Well, obviously, the main application, again, is obey, verse 11, obey commandments. But more specific to this paragraph, we should take the lesson about our own self-sufficiency as opposed to the sufficiency God provides. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, and he brought you water of the flinty rock. You know, those are both things that the New Testament applies to Jesus Christ. On the one hand, with the water, in a very startling way, in 1 Corinthians 10, when we're told that the Israelites went through similar experiences to us in 1 Corinthians 10. They were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, were baptized in a way into Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the rock that keeps providing water in the Old Testament narratives is equated to Christ. There is a spiritual refreshing, nourishing, life-sustaining happening there. Those people depended on Christ, Paul is saying, just as much as you, Christian believer, depend on Christ. That is a reminder of Christ's sufficiency for you instead of having to supply sufficiency for yourself. He is the rock in a weary land. He is the rock that provides water by God's appointments. He is the one who can refresh your soul and who must not be forgotten. Who redeemed you? Who guided you? Who slaked your thirst and who fed your heart? Not only the water, of course, is compared to Jesus, but also the manna that your fathers didn't know. 
that good blessing that in its very goodness was a kind of test, that's compared to Jesus in John chapter 6. That's where the Jews ask Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, look at the manna in Exodus 16, look at the manna in Deuteronomy 8, and see me, see my role in sustaining the life of God's people, in nourishing you in a spiritual way. Again, not providing our own sufficiency, but recognizing that God does us good, that Christ is the source of our blessings. So when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty, who blesses you abundantly, who does you good eventually. Sooner or later, he provides everything that you need. But then finally, who warns against idolatry. Verses 17 through 20. Verse 17 gets at sort of the core delusion on the part of the prosperous man. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. To say otherwise is to be full of amnesia about the rest of the stuff in this chapter. It's to be full of delusion and pride, and it is really to utter blasphemy. The expression, I'm a self-made man. I know we want to express sometimes that we're not dependent on this or that state agency or program or handout, but that whole concept, the deeply American concept of the self-made man, uh, runs up directly against Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my, the might of my hand, my strength and my skill are the ones that have made my estate. The reason I'm prosperous and rich is me. The Lord would have us know that he has given us strength to prosper. He gives you power to get wealth. Though you might be employed gainfully and diligently in building a business or working at a job or developing a product or digging the field up for your crops, though you might have your hands involved, you do not deserve anything from it. You have no strength even to go outside and do it, except the Lord gives you that strength and adds to your work that blessing. As Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless he watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So it's God who enables you to get wealth, contrary to our uh, wealth-tinged, blasphemous kind of delusion that my power and my might are responsible for why I'm doing so great at life. But then verse 19 almost sounds to us like a new warning that comes out of nowhere. And if you forget the Lord your God, that's the double forget, remember, if you absolutely or if you ever, if you anyway forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, you'll perish. Idolatry is at the end of this road. It's not a disconnect. 
Forgetting the Lord is equated with not keeping his commandments. Forgetting the Lord is equated with uh, shrugging off his blessings and attributing everything good to yourself. And forgetting the Lord is ultimately equated in verse 19 with idolatry. If you forget, forget the Lord, your God, and go after other gods. You and I, as people made in God's image, uh, and who have some spiritual sensibility in us, uh, if we turn away from the Lord, there won't remain a God void. We will serve something. We will orient our lives around something. If necessary, as Romans 1 says, we will worship the creature instead of the creator. Fall down and worship the fertility like the Canaanites did, or the power like the Romans did, or the wealth like the Persians did. We will fall down and worship if you're not going to worship the Lord and acknowledge that he's the source of your wealth, that he's the one holding up your life, that he's the one you're supposed to be eating and drinking with. If you will not do that, you will be an idolater. It will be like those Israelites who eventually were so corrupt in Hosea's day that God says to them, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they then used for Baal. If we will not honor God with his gifts, we become idolaters. So actually verse 19 flows very naturally from the arrogance, from the self-sufficient attitude of verse 17. And God warns us that that kind of idolatry, that heart-exalting, possession-worshipping attitude will receive judgment. I solemnly warn you that you shall surely perish. That's actually another double verb. You will perish, perish. Like the nations we read about last week, that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. There it is once again, the great recurring application, the great desire of Moses, that all these things remind us to obey. This time it's in verse 20. Obey the voice of the Lord your God. But also let's be reminded by these verses in particular that there is no neutrality in our stance towards God. We will serve and worship him or we will serve and worship something else. Either the possessions that we accumulate or maybe that we crave and fail to accumulate. We will worship ourselves for being so smart, so strong, that we got it all figured out and made ourselves prosperous and made ourselves safe. Or we will worship some other force, some other being, something else that supplies our needs, supposedly. There is no neutrality. Jonah reminds us of the futility of all this, though. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When you give your devotion and trust to a God that is not God, you cut yourself off from what you might have actually received from your true covenant God. There is, of course, in God's threats here, a jealousy. A jealousy natural to the covenant bond that Deuteronomy is putting into treaty form. A jealousy that reflects his eternal gracious choice of his people. As we studied it last week, the Lord set his love on you. A jealousy that reflects the redemptive cost, the ransom payment that even Deuteronomy mentions, but that the gospel of Jesus makes so much more plain to us. And so rightly appreciating what Jesus has provided, 
in his redemption, but also in his subsequent gifts, it's natural to be reminded by his apostle in 1 John 5, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So when you prosper, don't forget the Lord who tested you through poverty, blesses you abundantly, does you good eventually, making all the good and the bad work together so that you are rightly built up and given opportunity to grow, and who warns against idolatry, the natural outcome of looking to the gift and looking to yourself instead of looking to the giver. Again, we are not in exactly the same position as the Israelites with regard to physical, earthly prosperity. And yet, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we can have the right attitude towards whatever prosperity God may in fact give us, which happens, in our case, to be a lot. You know, I think about that prayer in Proverbs 30, where the king prays that he would be given neither poverty nor riches. Because on the one hand, I would be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And on the other hand, I would be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, that is a wise prayer. That is a recognition that you and I can be tempted by our poverty and hardship, and we can be tempted by our abundance. But I think the Apostle Paul takes it a step further when he's writing to the Philippians, who have just given him a mightily generous gift. And he speaks of rejoicing in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern for me in chapter 4, verse 10. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You see, Paul is saying even more than what Proverbs 30 said. Yes, poverty can be a snare. Yes, riches can be a snare. Yes, we need to be wise and and even talk about the Lord with those concerns. But ultimately, we are able in Christ Jesus to handle poverty and to handle riches. If we, like Paul, are captivated by Christ, we care more about his salvation, his fellowship, everything he's provided us. If we are in Christ, we know how to be rich without letting the riches corrupt us and make us forget. And we know how to be poor without turning into self-pity and resentment. We know how to abound. And we know how to be hungry. Whatever the Lord appoints will be sufficient for us. We count Christ Jesus the giver more important than his gifts. So hopefully, brothers and sisters, given the fuller perspective of Scripture and the fuller knowledge of all that God's given you in Christ Jesus, you, like Paul, can handle both poverty and wealth in a way that does not make you forgetful turning away from the Lord to idolatry. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that you have appointed all of the hardship and abundance we could ever experience in this life. We thank you for the great treasures laid up for us in heaven, for the glories yet to be seen, in which we will no longer be tempted to turn against you and forget you. Father, until that time, would you please train us as you see fit. 
Help us to adopt the position of your sons and daughters who are willing to be given good gifts and be grateful, who are willing also to walk through seasons of hardship, if you will it. Thank you for having all these things well in hand for the people of Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.